What makes a great leader? What are some qualities that a great leader possesses? Anyone? Anyone? Shout it out. Wisdom. Wisdom. Wise. Yep. That's a good one. What else? Integrity. That's a good one. What else? What makes a great leader? Courage. Courageous. That's a great one. What else? Wise, integrity, integrous, integrous, courage, sacrificial, sacrifice. That's a good one. What else? Humility. Humble. Humble and humility both came out at the same time. You guys are thinking on the same page. What else? Anything? We've got a pretty well-rounded leader. Um, I have persistent, someone who endures. Goes through trials and keeps going. Um, Understanding. Understands where his people or her people are at. One of the best leaders I've ever read about was a man named Ernest Shackleton. Ernest Shackleton. Now, Ernest was an explorer in the early 1900s. And what really put his name on the map was this one exploration that he took to the South Pole. That was the goal in 1914. And it was funny, he put out this advertisement, and I want you to listen to what the advertisement said. It had in big, bold letters, men wanted. And then beneath that, in smaller letters, it says, for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, (laughs) honor and recognition in case of success. That was his ad. And apparently there was like lines of people that signed up. They wanted to be a part of this expedition awesome we should get back to that that'd be amazing but in this task he's he's gathering this group of people and he assembles this group of men and they board a ship called the endurance in 1914 now the endurance was not just a little dinghy okay this thing had walls of oak three feet thick solid oak three feet thick like i think a sheet of plywood is really heavy so i can't imagine how heavy this thing was But the crazy thing was, is that even with this super heavy-duty ship, they go into the ice, they're sailing, they're trying to get as far as they can towards the South Pole, and it gets trapped, and the ice surrounds it, and it comes up against it, it crushes the ship, and it literally splits it in half. Ship sinks. It takes a lot of time, so Ernest is able to get his men and a lot of their gear off the ship. But what was so incredible about this journey is not only that Ernest Shackleton survive to to tell the tale but all 28 men who were with him also survived and that's cool but it's even cooler when you hear that they were stranded for 497 days in antarctica and antarctica it's way colder than even minus 10 like we had okay did you know in antarctica there every year there's about 89 days straight where the sun never rises (laughs) can you imagine three months of straight darkness terrible so there's a lot of factors that contributed to their success but a huge part was the leadership of this man Ernest Shackleton he had a vision he was courageous he was determined he was persistent he was wise he was inspirationally gathered the people around him and you and I are drawn to leaders we want to be on the team with the good guy, with the winning quarterback or the pretty girl or whatever, fill in the blank. We desire to be a part of that. But what I want to draw your eyes to tonight is that God has called each of you 
to exercise leadership in the sphere that God has you. It's not just something for the Ernest Shackletons of the world, which are very few and far between. It is for all of us. Please turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. We began to study the life and the work of one of the Bible's greatest leaders, a man named Nehemiah who exercises some, some major um, components of a leader. He's sacrificial, he's bold, he's faith-filled. And we're going to continue to look at him over the next semester. But we're going to start right here in chapter 2, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9. My title, if you're taking notes, is Building a People. We're going to see how Nehemiah encourages us to this. Building a People. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and the horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So building a people, building a people. My first point is expect opposition. Expect opposition. So to backtrack a little bit, even before what happens in the book of Nehemiah, God delivers up this people, the nation of Israel, more specifically the nation of Judah, to be conquered by enemies because of their sin. And so all of the people get carried out of the city, transported to another country. They're living in exile. And Nehemiah is there when he hears news in chapter 1, verse 3. And the news is that the city, who he has actually never been in, because it's been that long since they've been exiled. He was born far from home. The city is not only not getting better, but it's actually getting worse. The carnage, the wreckage from the exile is getting worse. And Nehemiah weeps, and he fasts, and he prays. And the content of his prayer fills most of chapter 1. That's what we studied a couple weeks ago. However, what happens is four months go by, which gets us to chapter 2. And the king notices that he's still sad. He's still troubled about it. Nehemiah's still discouraged at what has happened. And so the king asks, what do you want? What do you need? And not only is the king willing to hear him out, but also the king supplies the resources And enables Nehemiah to go and to do this. King Artaxerxes promises all the necessary resources for building the wall. And he actually also sends paperwork to give Nehemiah a safe passage. Everything's working in his favor. It's all going smoothly. So it's easy, if you look at chapter 2 verse 8, to see how Nehemiah could say this. The king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Everything's going well. But in verse 10 is the first time in this book that we see opposition against Nehemiah. Nehemiah clearly understands that his mission is from God. And when everything is going smoothly for us, it can be really easy to say, oh yeah, God's, you know, he's looking favorably favorably upon me. Things are going well. I can trust in God. God is blessing me. But what happens when you face opposition? Do you still trust him? Do you still remember that this is God's plan for what he is doing in your life? Is the God who commissioned you 
now unwilling or unable to support you? The same God that encouraged you in the success, has he now abandoned you in the adversity? These are questions that we often feel, thoughts that we have. This opposition coming from the men Sanballat and Tobiah, those are some interesting names. Haven't heard any of those recently. These men are governors of surrounding territories. So there's the city of Jerusalem, and right around it, there's all these opponents. And Sanballat and Tobiah are opponents. They are governors of surrounding lands. We haven't had time to get into this, but what happens before the book of Nehemiah in the book of Ezra is there's a group of exiles that come from the same land, from Persia. So they travel a long ways. We'll talk about that. And they start building the temple. And the guy who's leading that's named Zerubbabel. Everyone say Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. That one rolls off the tongue. Zerubbabel. So he leads this expedition and he starts rebuilding the temple. And in order to build a temple, he had to build a platform, rebuild it from the wreckage, the enemies. And the problem was, is it gets shut down. So he faces opposition as well. The next guy who comes after Zerubbabel's name is Ezra. You probably know that because it's the book right before this. So Ezra comes and he keeps doing the work on the temple. The governors of the provinces beyond the river were threatened by the presence of this people group And they wanted to make them afraid. They wanted Nehemiah now to fear their work and to be afraid at the consequences of it. One commentator says it this way. Whenever the people of God do the work of God, it always stirs up the enemies of God. Whenever the people of God do the work of God, it always stirs up the enemies of God. This is the case. And it makes us ask, how do we respond to this opposition. What do we do? Well, let's keep reading to see. In verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one which I rode. I went out by night, by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So in building a people, first, we expect opposition. Second, we assess the need. Assess the need. As we've seen in both sermons in Nehemiah before tonight, and we see again, Nehemiah is really methodical. He's really intentional in what he does and in the way that he does it. And there's some things you're reading, it's like, why? I wonder why you do that way. I don't have time to unpack all of them, but we will talk about some of them. Nehemiah sets a great example in how we are to approach our work. And we live today in 2024 in an age of immediate gratification. If something doesn't satisfy or please you right now, it's not really worth doing. It's not worth pursuing. It's not worth working for. And Nehemiah sets a stark contrast to that in, in, in valuing the works that would take a while and a lot of work. <laughs> One of the results of this is that we set our sights far too low about what God can 
do through us and in us. Instead of constantly being lookout, on the lookout for improvement, we're content with staying in our own little bubbles, hanging out with the same two or three friends, you know, never stepping out in faith. Student, God is calling you, even tonight, to be a part of building a people, of building God's people. And you have a part to play in that. We need to start by assessing the need of how this church and even how this youth group can be benefited by that. How we can be better at drawing, training, and equipping young people to not just serve the Lord, but to love the Lord. And I long to see more of that in each of you. How does it begin? Same way it seems Nehemiah begins everything with prayer. (laughs) You can see this. Look at verse 12. I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Now notice, there's no Bible verse that tells Nehemiah, you are to go build the walls, okay? That was a conviction that the Lord had laid upon his heart that he had been willing and able to receive, willing to submit to and to pursue. This comes through communion with the Lord in prayer. And Nehemiah was convinced that this is what God was calling him to do. Some of you in this room are upperclassmen, juniors, seniors, getting ready for the next step, thinking about college. You have no idea where you're going to go. You have no idea what you're going to study. Some of you have no idea what you want to do with the rest of your life. It's okay. You can talk to a guidance counselor, and they'll probably help give you a plan. It's not bad, but a better way to start is through prayer. It's through seeking the Lord and saying, God, Help show me what I am to do. And the best way I've found to figure this out is by looking at the needs that are right in front of you. So saying a prayer like, God, help me to see the needs that are right in front of me is a great way to start. And oftentimes what God does is you see this little tiny need and you start serving or you start caring for it. You start pursuing it or you start helping. And all of a sudden the next door opens up. You're like, oh, well. Maybe the Lord's calling me to do this. And you move towards that one and that one and the next one and the next one. And it builds and all of a sudden you are in a spot that you would have never thought you might end up in. When we walk into a Wednesday night, it's okay to recognize that things aren't perfect. (laughs) This is not a perfect ministry. It's far from it. And we have some incredible leaders. We have very gifted leaders, but there's only so many of them. In order for a culture to exist in this student ministry, it can't be coming from them. It really needs to be coming from you guys. So what is the pace that we are setting? What if every single student walked into a Wednesday night and thought, I want to make this, instead of thinking, this place isn't that good, what if they thought, I want to make this place better? What would that change? How would you be able to contribute to that change? Even when you walk in a small group, it can be easy to think, oh, I wish this friend from school was in my group, or, oh, I wish I was in that person's small group. But what if the Lord is trying to convince you that, no, you're not in that person's small group for a specific reason, and no, that friend is in another group for a reason, because the Lord wants to use you where you are at in this season. When we approach the things directly ahead of us, trusting that God is giving us this opportunity 
and he's not giving it to someone else. We are taking part in the building of God's people. Nehemiah continues this trek. Continue in verse 17. Let's look at it. Nehemiah says to them, You see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So step number three, cast a vision. Cast a vision. After seeing a need, one of my first reactions is typically to want to meet it on my own. I see something come up and my first thought is, oh, I'll do that. And sometimes what's causing that, often a lot of times if I'm being honest, is this internal sense of pride that I want to have for accomplishing something. (laughs) Whether that be the recognition that someone gives me for doing it or just an internal sense of, oh, I'm doing well. Because I took care of this need. I fixed this issue. I helped this person. Sometimes we pursue noble things and set good goals on the outside. But really our desire is to prove to others that we're capable. Or we're sufficient. Or we can handle it. And Nehemiah sees this massive project ahead of him. And he knows that by his own strength it's never going to happen. He will never rebuild these walls. So what he does is he gathers the people around him and casts a vision for the project. And when I say cast a vision, that can sound like weird language. Essentially, all it is is identifying a need and communicating it to people around you in a way that inspires them to be a part of the solution. So notice, we'll get to that. How does Nehemiah cast the vision? He rallies them around something that they share. They're all in Jerusalem. Their city is in ruins. And this is the Lord's city. So not only is it derision that they are feeling, but also this is a bad representation of God. So when a stranger walks into Redeemer students or even Sunday morning, if everything's out of order, if you are talking during the service, if you are not respecting the Lord, what does that communicate to the person who's never been here before? communicates that we don't care about God's name or about his reputation. And that is what Nehemiah is understanding. But Nehemiah rallies the people, and he does it in verse 18. Look at what he says. I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words the king had spoken to me. Nehemiah reminds the people of what God has done in the past. And so, student... If you walk into your small group right after this and you're thinking, I I would love to encourage the students around me to see what God is doing, here's a great way to do it. Share your testimony. Because what happens anytime a person is saved is their life is transformed from death into life. They are an enemy of God and they become a friend of God. They are in exile and now they become a son or a daughter. That is a miracle that God performs on undeserving sinners like you and like me. And so to remember the incredible work that God has performed on our hearts gives us great hope for what God can do in the future. 
We need to remember the work that God has done. And that's what Nehemiah draws the people's attention to. He says, look, God's already provided. He's given me all the resources. He's given me letters for passage through the land. He's given us everything that we need. How can we not build the walls? How can we not accomplish this if God is with us? I love the wording that's given at the end of verse 18. And I think it leads well into our last point. So the people strengthen their hands for the good work. And the work God has called each of us to participate in, building a people, we need to begin by expecting to face opposition. And then we need to look around and see what is lacking and assess the need around us. After that, we cast a vision to gather others in this work. And finally, we number four, encourage perseverance. Encourage perseverance. Let's read the last section of our passage. Looking at verse 19. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. These adversaries are not only now just displeased, like we saw at the very beginning of the passage, but they are openly mocking Nehemiah. They're saying, what are are you trying to do? Come on, this is ridiculous. Are you defying the king? Are you going against his orders? Are you saying that you're better than the king? The enemies intimidate and threaten the people of Jerusalem by reminding them of how huge this project is and by implying that what they're doing goes against the authorities. But notice how Nehemiah responds. I think this is good for us to remember. The God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. Nehemiah doesn't just fear this little earthly king. We talked about that last week. He fears God. And not just a little God, but the God of heaven. And if the God of heaven has been with us on this whole journey, if he has done all these miraculous things, what is to say that he will not help us to endure to the end? Nehemiah reminds us that God will accomplish his purposes. God does all that he pleases. The capacities of God's purposes in your life are far greater than some of you believe. God can do much more in your life than some of you believe. And any way that God uses to get our eyes off of ourselves and our own very limited abilities and onto Him and what He can do is ultimately a way that He shows us kindness. Here's a great quote on that by George Mueller. He says, God delights to increase the faith of His children. We ought... Instead of wanting no trials before victory, no exercise for patience, to be willing to take them from God's hands as a means, as a way that he does this. Trials, obstacles, difficulties, and sometimes defeats are the very food of faith. Do you think that (laughs) when you have the worst day of your life at school? (laughs) Everything that could possibly go wrong went wrong. And you feel stranded. Do you think that? That this trial, obstacle, 
that the Lord has given you is actually an opportunity for your faith to grow, for your dependence upon the God of heaven to increase. Remember back to the story of Ernest Shackleton. Can you imagine if you sat down in a room with all 28 of his men and you said this, you are going to go on the hardest journey of your life. It will be much longer than you expect. You are going to face biting winds, freezing temperatures, growling stomachs. It will be miserable. And you will wonder how you are going to make it. You will have to endure many sorrows, but in the end, you will make it. And there's nothing that you can do to stop it. Do you think it would change the perspective of the men on that journey? Do you think their, their hearts would be more encouraged that every time they face an obstacle, instead of thinking, well, this is the end, never make it through this. No, no, no. They're thinking, oh, if I make it through this, I'm one step closer to the end. I'm one step closer to completing this journey. And really, this is the truth that all believers live in. You know the end. You know that one day you will be with the Lord. And not only will you be with the Lord in eternity, but we also have a promise that Matthew, that Jesus gives us in Matthew 16. He says to Peter that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So do you understand that when you contribute to the work of building up of God's people, the church, you are on the winning side. <laughs> that work will not be shut down. How encouraging is it to know that your labor is not in vain and it never will be because God has staked himself upon it. He has secured the victory. What does God use to build this church? His people. He uses people like us. Nehemiah says that the God of heaven will make us prosper, but he also says that the people will arise and build. The confidence to come to work comes from the promise that was given. The confidence that we have to do the labor comes from the promise that it will be successful. And I pray that the same would even be said in this student ministry, that God would accomplish his, his purposes of building this group, of building his church. And they, we would be reminded every week that we are fighting a winning battle. We know the end. We know how the story is written. How comforting is that? To us who feel discouraged when it's not working how we thought. To know that the Lord is in control. And the Lord will accomplish his purposes. And that, not our own strength, not our own planning, not our own strategizing, is our hope. Our hope is in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. We ask that you use it to pierce our hearts. Even as we discuss and continue to think over it. Lord, lead us in the way in which we must go. Be with us even now. Help your word to be alive and active in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.